Welcome to the Open House Podcast. Conversations exploring life, faith and hope with Stephen O'Doherty. With the remarkable record of the Australian economy growing for the last 26 years, it is hard to contemplate living in a country with a problem like hyperinflation or even hyperstagflation. Hyperinflation is a kind of inflation on steroids that makes money become virtually worthless as soon as it's printed. And it happened in Germany in the 1920s, as you probably recall from studying history. And it's happening right now in Turkey and Venezuela. In Venezuela, the um, economy is also stagnant, so they've got hyper-stagflation. Well, thousands of people have fled the country, and the government has tried to correct this problem, predicted by the International Monetary Fund, to reach a million percent inflation by the end of the year. The government's uh, tried to um, attack that with a really massive revaluation of the local currency, the Bolivar. Uh, Not a 10 or 20% revaluation, but an epic cut in the value of money. It chopped five zeros. 100,000 old Bolivars is now worth one of the new sovereign Bolivars. Well, Michelle Carmody is a Latin American specialist from Melbourne University. Michelle, welcome to Open House. Oh, thank you for having me. I, I guess the first question is just how can you possibly live in a country where the inflation rate is 108,000%? Yeah, good question. It's really hard to imagine. And yeah, it's really difficult to live. And you don't know, especially if you're relying on a salary um, uh, or you just need money to do things um, Yeah, it's really, really difficult. But what I think has kind of ended up happening in Venezuela, in all of Latin American countries, there's a really big informal sector. People deal in cash and they deal in barter and they buy things on the street. So I think that sector has just gotten a lot bigger and that's where people turn to to just make ends meet, really. Yeah, is part of that then that a lot of people will deal in whatever foreign currency they can get hold of, generally US dollars? So is there a a secondary market in US dollars operating? Oh, definitely. That's kind of one of the... I mean, it's hard to say what the main factor in the crisis was, but there's always been a black market in dollars in all Latin American countries and in Venezuela, and especially after Venezuela put currency controls in, which meant that you could not just go down to your local currency exchange and exchange Venezuelan bolivars for dollars, mm. which is actually something that Latin Americans in general really do because their own currencies have a history of being unstable. Mm. So often people will hold US dollars, hold their savings, or um, you know, large things like houses are priced in US dollars. Mm. But when people weren't able to do that, then you just turn to the black market, which is, you know, it might sound a bit shadowy and uh, inaccessible for us, but it really just means going down to uh, the main pedestrian mall where there's many people offering a black market currency exchange or just asking like a friend of a friend at work. So there's a lot of ways you can access the black market. It doesn't have, I mean, obviously it's illegal, but it doesn't have the kind of deep shadiness but, that it might for us. No, but say. you do what's necessary just in order to live. So in an environment where a loaf of bread is, you know, substantially more expensive in the afternoon than in the morning, and if you're on a fixed income, as you've said, um, it just it strikes me that life itself must be just so hard for those poor people. How did they get to that stage? So initially Venezuela was regarded as a kind of economic powerhouse, but it turns out, uh, isn't it true, that their one resource, petrol, um, 
really was the source of the problem. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of something that economists say in general. It's the yeah, the resource curse is that when you're highly dependent on one export product that is a primary product, a resource, natural resource, then the problem is that you can't set the price of that resource on the world market. Mm. So, you know, China can set the price of its uh, manufactured goods and it can undercut competitors. But if you're producing oil, you don't set the price. So when the price of oil was high, that was really great for Venezuela. Um, and they used all of the income for from the oil to fund a lot of social services. Um, and they really lifted a lot of people out of poverty. But then when the global price of oil started to drop in about 2014, um, and that coincided with the death of Hugo Chavez, who was the Venezuelan leader throughout the early 2000s, hmm. Um, so the main kind of figurehead of this left-wing economic project, um, this project of redistributing oil wealth, these two things kind of happening at the same time then create this kind of crisis in confidence. I mean, with less money coming in uh, from oil sales, uh, then you have less foreign exchange coming in, less US dollars coming in. Um, so you start using up your stocks of US dollars that you've kind of put away during the good times. So you've got less money in which to engage in the social services that you were engaging in before. And yeah, then it kind of spirals from there. So mm. any economy that is highly dependent on resources um, is really, really vulnerable. And Venezuela, although their exports are only about 30% of GDP, oil is about 95% of that. Um, so yeah, the drop in oil prices in 2014 affected a lot of countries, but affected Venezuela particularly because it coincided with the death of this leader that was, you know, quite visible and really the personal kind of figurehead of the the movement of the last 10 years. Yeah, between those days, the 80s, the 90s, and the present day, you've also had what a couple of coup d'etats. Is that right? Well, so Hugo Chavez is kind of an interesting um, figure. He comes from the military. In the early 90s, he was actually behind a coup. He was part of a coup. He wasn't the leader. He was one of this small group of military officers that staged a left-wing military coup mm. against a right-wing, quite neoliberal government, so, you know, a government that is taking away subsidies. I mean, it was unsuccessful, but he then managed to... In the, in the years after that, he became quite a figurehead of this kind of anti-neoliberal movement. So he gained popularity, then he became elected. Then uh, there was an attempted coup against him, um, but it didn't, didn't really succeed. The army is quite largely on the side of the Chavez project, right? So now it's under the leadership of Nicolas Maduro, who took over after Chavez died. Um, but the army is largely supporting the government, and without the army's support, they would have been long gone. Our guest on Open House is Dr Michelle Carmody, an academic specialist on Central America at the University of Melbourne. So you've mentioned a few times words like neoliberal and, and, and so on. What, are the, what is the politics, and where does it stack up against a succession of, uh, I guess, communist-leaning countries in Central America, most of which have fallen over either with or without the intervention of the United States? There's obviously a long history of uh, left-wing uh, political movements in Latin America, beginning with the Cuban Revolution, obviously, in 1959. Mm. But that kind of sparked off, say, a new a specific cycle, a Cold War era cycle of revolutionary movements. Um, but then more towards the end of the Cold War, you also see, um, you see authoritarian regimes also across Latin America in response to these left-wing movements. 
But towards the kind of 1980s, you see the development of neoliberal economic policies, right? So the idea that there are, um, you can promote growth by having yeah, low inflation, high foreign investment, so really opening up the economy. You know, the kind of division in Latin America these days or since the 80s is not so much between, say, communist and capitalist or communist and authoritarian the way it used to be. It's mm. really, there's a strong movement around anti-neoliberalism because neoliberalism is associated, quite rightly, with taking away the subsidies, um, things like bus subsidies or child subsidies, um, food subsidies, housing subsidies, the sorts of things that governments, left-leaning and even social democratic governments in Latin America uh, developed in order to yeah, bring the lower classes out of poverty um, and try and create a lower middle class. So that's a, a welfare-type uh, scenario, but it... If it's not sustainable economically, that then doesn't it feed exactly the problem that we've seen. Economic collapse, hyperinflation, devaluation of the dollar, which itself now surely is uh, um, at the point where Venezuela has to be seen as incredibly unstable. Has it reached the, the tipping point yet? Do you think? Well, I think it's, yeah, I mean, obviously it's quite surprising that it hasn't tipped. Um, so it's definitely at the tipping point. Yeah, what will it take, though, to make it tip is a really good question. Yeah, I mean, obviously, when Venezuela's oil wealth or oil income dropped, then their ability to engage in these transfers also dropped. But at the same time, inflation is not... I mean, obviously, hyperinflation is bad. What Venezuela has is, I guess, hyper-stagflation, right? Hyperinflation with stagnation. There's no economic growth. Hmm. Um, but you also you need a little bit of uh, inflation in order to have economic growth, right? Inflation is just things <laughs> yes, growing. Yes, but not one hundred and eight thousand percent. No, yes, that's right. <laughs> but yeah, so the I mean, this is the this is the long dilemma. I mean, for developing countries, how do you achieve growth without that growth going, I guess, out of control and ending up like what Venezuela has? Hmm. You need to bring people out of poverty, which means engaging in government transfers. But yeah, then if something happens like an external shock in commodity prices, then you can't fund those transfers. Yeah, to be honest, I don't know what's going to happen in Venezuela. I think that slowly but surely, yeah, the government will try as many options as possible. It's becoming more and more, I wouldn't say authoritarian, but closing off the normal democratic routes by which people voice their opposition. So the Supreme Court has been intervened into, um, the Congress has been intervened into... So slowly but surely they're closing off people's avenues for basically demanding a change, mm. which only leads to one thing, which is people demanding a change violently. Yes. Now, Michelle, what's life like for the average Venezuelan? Well, firstly, many of the average Venezuelans are leaving, aren't they, or seeking to leave. But what what is it like from a humanitarian perspective? Yeah, I think it really depends on where people are. Obviously, in urban areas, it's much more serious because... If you live in an urban area, you need to go to a shop, go to a supermarket to get things. Um, so uh, you need to have really great personal networks. Um, so you need to know someone that can hook you up with government stores and the goods that come in there. Um, or you need to have uh, hard currency, US dollars, and be able to buy things on the black market. Um, or you need to have a very effective kind of barter network where you're sharing things with people. Mm. 
If you live in the countryside, then uh, you maybe have the ability to grow things and the situation is a little less serious there. But yeah, Venezuela has a large population and a large population that was already quite poor. Um, so there are a lot of people that are going hungry. Apparently malnutrition has risen. Um, people are not eating the, yeah, the required daily calories. So, and there is then, and then that translates into a situation of general lawlessness, right? That it is much more dangerous. Um, to be moving around because people are quite desperate. Well, in those circumstances, then normally you'd say, well, why doesn't someone step in? Well, stepping in has not always worked out very well in in the history of the world, but um, there is one pathway potentially, the World Monetary Fund. Yeah, so in the past, maybe the US would sponsor a military coup to step in, but that's obviously, yeah, the world is a very different place now and Mm. that's not going to happen. Mm. Um, Plus, the military in Venezuela is on the government side. People got really worried when Trump was elected because he talked about kind of a military intervention in Venezuela, um, which is not completely out of the question. But in terms of the economic situation, yes. So normally, if a country was facing inflation, before it even got to the sort of hyperinflation that Venezuela is in, they would usually turn to the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and ask for a loan. Um, that loan would come with conditions. It would come with conditions like, like we saw in Greece, right? Like it was, a, it would be a bailout. So mm. there would be uh, less money. You know, the pension age would probably have to rise. Less money for subsidies. Less money for government programs. These sorts of things. The thing in Venezuela is, if if they were to turn to the IMF, I'm not sure if they'd find an open door. Mm. But um, that would be essentially going against their political project, which since, you know, the rise of Chavez in the 90s has been anti-neoliberal, right? So the IMF is kind of the biggest symbol of neo, one of the biggest symbols of, of neoliberal market capitalism, economy. yes. Well, they might not have a choice. Yeah, so it's, it's <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it, the government has really held on to this, these currency controls and held on to its policies to a point way beyond the point where it was actually benefiting the country and most people. Um, and for that, they are squarely to blame. But from another perspective, yeah, it's interesting to see how their attempts to chart an independent course, mm. it's a bit kind of hard to be a diamond in a rhinestone world, I suppose. How do you chart an independent course within a global, an independent economic course within a global economic system? And it's very obviously very hard for them to do that because normally you chart your in, your economic course and then when you have trouble, you turn to the global economic system. Yes, yes. I see where you're going with that. Well, we live in a globalised world and maybe the lesson of this is that, as you've said, it's very hard to be an, out, an outrider now. And yeah. Largely speaking, the days of these left-wing um, republics is uh, is well and truly over. Yeah, the conditions are just not really... Yeah, the conditions are not right for it in the way that they may be once were, let's say, you can't chart an independent national uh, course. But places like Bolivia and Ecuador and Argentina and Brazil at the time were also definitely to the left of centre and they all supported each other. Mm. Now, those governments have all been voted out. So Venezuela was kind of always a bit much more hard left than the others um, and is now left without anybody's without any oil, wealth, and with just a completely disastrous internal situation. Oh, those poor people. Well, Michelle, yeah. thank you for explaining all of that to us in great detail. It's been, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thanks for your time tonight. Yeah, thank you.
Michelle Carmody, a Latin American academic specialist from Melbourne University. Discover more Open House podcasts at openhousecommunity.com.au.